All right, so I'll just add my welcome to everyone uh, this morning. Um, I'm Julie Hollett. Wayne and I um, started New Life Church back in, well, a long time ago, 1997, 26 years ago, and we're still here. <laughs> God hasn't moved us, uh, but we're still growing and loving ministry here in the region of Fremantle, uh, for the Fremantle City, is particularly on our heart. But as Daniel said at the close of today's service, we're having a time of prayer for this group. It's actually 37 people. Not everybody could, could be here today, I think, but I think we've got the majority, maybe 35 um, with us today. Um, and we really need your prayers. We, we ask you to pray for us as we're traveling, as we're on the tour, and as we, wherever we're going that the Lord's protection would be over us. But actually, you know, as important as that, we need you to pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would give us understanding as we're going around to see more than what's in the physical and to be able to hear, to read God's word as we're going around and also to see the future promises that are still in the land. And so this morning, I want to actually, I want to give like, it's almost like an apologetic for um, why Israel, almost. It's almost like that. Because when I was growing up, I didn't actually hear anything. And I grew up in, in churches. I grew up in the faith. My family is a strong Christian family, but I never heard anything about the ongoing role that God has for Israel and the nations, right? Israel and the nations. I heard everything about the nations. I heard nothing about Israel until I was 40 years old. And then it came when we, Wayne and I were um, on long service leave at the International House of Prayer. And I heard the first ever teaching about God's enduring purposes for the nation of Israel. And I was weeping. My head was grappling with the information, but my spirit was weeping for this revelation and the mercy of God. I couldn't believe it. couldn't believe I'd been a Christian so long and missed that bit. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. We've been reading, those of us on the tour, Samuel sent a big box of books uh, and... Uh, the book is Israel and the Great Commission. So I'm using that kind of language this morning as I share my heart on this topic. So get your Bibles ready. Or get your phones ready. There'll be a lot of verses on the screen, but you know, there'll be one, once or twice I'll actually ask you to open your Bibles. In fact, you can open your Bibles right now to Romans, the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, 11. But I want to start, this is the title of the talk this morning, The Glory of God in the Great Commission. There it is, the glory of God. What is the glory of God? We sing about it. We've, I was noticing, yeah, we sing about it a lot. We sang about the glory of God this morning, the glory of God. What do you think of when you think of the glory of God? The glory of God is something that is seen somehow, either with our natural eyes or with the eyes of our spirit so it can be an understanding that downloads to us wow the majestic splendor of God or you might see something in a vision and go I've never seen God like that it might be something in his character and you're in awe at his glory okay the glory of God 
in the Great Commission. That might surprise you, that statement. But I believe that when Paul recited his doxology at the end of Romans 11, he had seen the glory of God in the Great Commission. And that's what gave way to this hymn of praise. He bursts into this hymn of praise. Do you remember that? Remember that uh, that that um, doxology, have a read of it. Oh, he just goes, oh, the, glory, the, the wonder of God, the wisdom. It's beyond tracing out. Who, who can know God? Who has been his counselor? Who could ever repay God? For from him and through him and for him are all things. Glory and praise. He goes on and on. It's a hymn of praise because he's had a revelation. And my prayer today is that you would have a revelation of the glory of God and the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? I think most of us, if uh, you've been a Christian for any length of time, you would know. Yep, where's it found? Matthew 28. I think it's coming up on the screen. Can we read this together? Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority... Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? It's a command, it's a powerful moment, it's a sending, it's a commissioning. Um, some would say it's the end of Israel's story, but I want to ask the question is the Great Commission or is the New Testament? Because this is found in the New Testament. Is the New Testament the end of Israel's story? Is it the beginning of the nation's story? Well, as I said, growing up in church, it was only ever about the nations, really. I mean, Israel was one of the nations, but only as a nation, per se. A while ago, we... um, quite a few years ago, we wrote like a DNA statement or a document that expresses our core values and beliefs of new life. Uh, Most churches have one. And in that, we have a section that that lists 15 of our priorities. Uh, And we've got them listed as we are pursuing. And then there's 15 things we are pursuing. Well, one of them is this statement, we are pursuing God's continuing purposes for Israel. And that is our position because we believe that the Bible teaches that Israel has a central and ongoing role in God's plan to establish his kingdom on the earth. It teaches us that the Great Commission is God's plan to save the nations and to save Israel. Now, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, sometimes we we overlook the fact that he is a Jewish rabbi giving this Great Commission to Jewish disciples, apostles, right? The context in that moment is Jewish. And he's giving them a command to go to all nations, so when Jesus commissioned his disciples in Matthew 28, he wasn't, he wasn't like coming up with a new idea. He wasn't giving them a new vision. He wasn't saying, well, now I'm here. Here's the real deal. He wasn't saying, you know, God's had a change of plan. You know, Israel's been stubborn. God's not obligated anymore to use them to fulfill his covenant promises. No, no. 
Forget about them. Your job now. Let's disciple the nations. That's not what he's saying. But sometimes, for lack of even being taught about this, we can get that idea. It's not so. Understood in the context that God has an ongoing redemptive story that started in Genesis and it's going to climax and, and finish in Revelation, an ongoing story. He hasn't abandoned it. We can then read this great commission as God's plan to save Israel and the nations, all nations. So here at New Life, just in case you're wondering, we teach that, one, God's purposes for the nations didn't start in the New Testament. And the New Testament isn't the end of Israel's story. Just read that again to yourself. His purposes for the nations didn't start in the New Testament. Let's look at that. I'm talking about the Old Testament now, right? God's redemptive purposes, God's purposes have been articulated from beginning to end. God's covenant with Abraham sets the stage for the Great Commission. So I want to look at a, a handful of verses. Can I just say there are many. I can only afford, for sake of time, to give you just a few, to give you the idea, and you can search them out for yourself. But let's go back to the covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's three important promises that must be fulfilled. Number one relates to, what's the first one? The land. Can you see? I've actually... Bolded. <laughs> a little clue. The land. What's the second one? Great nation. Third one. In you, all the families, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's interesting because in Galatians 3 verse 8, Paul points out that when God gave these promises to Abraham, he was the first person to actually hear the gospel. The substance and reason for the future Great Commission. So this is it. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Did you know that? The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So right back in Genesis, can you see? The nations are there. This is the big plan. This plan to bless all the nations of the earth, let me just remind you, is the third point in what God spoke to Abraham. It's the third one. Let's look at the first one. What did we say it was? A promise about land. Has that been fulfilled? Oh. Yes, no, maybe so. <laughs> in part. Oh, that's a good one. In part. Not fulfilled, is it? Not fulfilled completely. What about number two? Abraham's descendants would become a great nation and make his name great in the earth. <laughs> in part. <laughs> in part? Yes. 
Yes. Fulfilled? Mm, don't think so. Mm, I hope not. <laughs> I hope we haven't seen the fulfillment. Be a bit of an anticlimax, wouldn't it? The Old Testament contains many stories, which are they're, they're prophetic pictures, and God uses different biblical char- characters to speak about his intentions for the nations, to sort of foreshadow what his end goal is. Can you give me an example of one? Joseph, thank you. That was a big, loud, yes, thank you very much, Mr. Fox. Joseph, indeed, a phenomenal example. I can't even begin to, Samuel does this really well, by the way. I think he's actually said this to us in in videos but the story of Joseph has so many so many prophetic foreshadowings pointing to Christ Um, when he was finally restored to his family in Egypt I mean you know the story right Um, I'm assuming you know the story one of Jacob's sons had visions his brothers didn't like it they pretended to kill him anyway sold him off to Ishmaelite slave traders he ends up in Egypt he ends up going up the tree second in command to Pharaoh when his brothers who tried to kill him finally because of a great famine come and stand before him begging for food right and he's finally restored to them Joseph recognized that his rejection 17 years earlier when they put him in that pit And they sold him as a slave. His rejection, think Jesus, and his labor in Egypt were all part of a God-ordained plan to save Egypt. Right? To save Egypt and the family of Israel. So the family of Israel, Jacob's family, they were saved, were they not? Because Joseph went to Egypt. Do Do you see that? And then... They became a nation in Egypt, and at the same time, Egypt and the surrounding Gentile nations were fed. Amazing, isn't it? Wow. You could sit in that story for three, three talks and just ponder the glory of God in this. Can you think of another one? Just one more. There's many. One more. Samson. Oh, interesting, Keenan. Yeah, tell us about Samson. <laughs> yes. He saved his people. He did save his people. He, he, and and we, we hope he saved some Philistines as well. <laughs> All right? That being the nations, right? We hope he saved some Philistines. Ruth. Ruth. Ruth is a Gentile. Her mother-in-law is Naomi, a Jew. And she makes that great statement, I'm not leaving you, Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm going with you wherever you go. It's a great picture, quite a different picture, but another part, another aspect of the Great Commission there. Another one I think that is interesting, I always find it interesting, and we sometimes overlook this when we study the Passover, you know, when the Israelites went out, when God led them out with plagues and he opened the Red Sea and that whole big drama, did you know that there were Egyptians who went with them, who were like, we are not staying in Egypt, no fear, you're God, we're going with you, God saved 
Egyptians and people from other nations. It's always in there. Rahab, Jericho. I mean, Daniel in Babylon. We could go on and on. You can think of many. We don't have time. But let me just point out a few scriptures. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, verses 6 to 8. God is saying, ask of me to his son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, Jesus. What about Psalm 22, 27 to 28? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Isaiah 49. And now says the Lord, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob or Israel back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. That's all about the Jews. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's not enough. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's right, isn't it, that the glory of God reaches to the ends of the earth? The mercy of God, that's what mercy is. What about Malachi 1.11? For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. It's all through the Old Testament. Can you see that the Great Commission didn't start in the New Testament? Jesus was simply now commissioning them it's like the next stage of the journey it's begun and I'm sending you now I'm sending you to the nations the Old Testament primarily tells Israel's story but it's more than Israel's story it's also the story of God's plan to save the nations through his plan with Israel Mm, that's the bit that's interesting It's through his plan with Israel. So if he's going to do it through his plan with Israel, which he has not abandoned, we need to understand that so that we can get on board with that. We don't find ourselves pulling against the biblical story of redemption, but we want to run with it. We want to run with God. We want to run with Jesus You see, God chose Israel for a specific purpose, but that choosing is for the sake of the nations. And the Old Testament consistently points towards God's story with Israel bringing salvation to the nations. From the beginning, God desired the nations and he wanted an inheritance from every people group for his son. Now, you might be thinking, Well, that's interesting because that's kind of not happening through Israel right now. Are you thinking that? That would be one of your logical conclusions. So the story is not over, is it? What about God's redemptive story in the New Testament? Again, for sake of time, I'm just going to quote two things that Jesus said. You might want to open up to this. Open up to Matthew 21, and then we're going to zip across to Matthew 23. 
So Matthew 21, verse 13. Now, this is when Jesus comes into the temple, remember, and he turns over the tables and he gets the whip and he drives out the animals. He's angry. And Jesus said to them, verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, I just want to say, I don't think Jesus is so much about he doesn't like marketplaces. He doesn't like what's happening in the house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah. That's why he says it is written. He's quoting Isaiah. When God is saying these, the foreigners, the Gentiles, that's the these in Isaiah. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, or your Bible might say for all nations. Do you know where that marketplace, where they were buying and selling animals and birds and all this sort of stuff, do you know where that was set up? In the court of the Gentiles, in the very place specifically set apart for the Gentiles to come in and pray. And Jesus is rebuking them. He's saying, you have lost sight of who you are. And as a people, your calling is to be a kingdom of priests. And your responsibility is to provide a a place of prayer for the Gentiles in the temple. The buying and selling is a putrid smell in my nostrils. That's what Jesus is saying. Matthew 23 verse 39. This is a whole chapter of woes to the religious leaders. But at the very end, verse 39, Jesus is predicting the end of the matter to the religious leaders because they'd rejected him. That's why. So he's now pronouncing judgment just before he dies. He says to them, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What has just happened? What has just happened before Jesus speaks all of this stuff in chapter 23. Can you remember? This is just before his death. This is in the week leading up to his death. What's happened at the start of the week? Palm Sunday. What we call Palm Sunday. That's right, Keenan. He had entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And they were waving palm branches. And they were crying out, Hosanna. And welcoming him as a king which was prophesied by the prophet Zechariah. So the religious leaders knew exactly what the people were doing. The people were saying, he's the one. Well, the children were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Glory to God in the highest. And they were grinding their teeth with rage. They were incensed. And they'd already planned his death. And Jesus turns around and says to them, you're not going to see me again like that 
coming in, being welcomed as the king, the Messiah, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that would have hung heavy in the air, but it is also a message of hope because it means that day is coming, right? That day is coming. It's not over. Jesus knows it's not over. He's coming back as king and he's coming back when the religious leaders of Israel see him. And they repent and they mourn for him as for a firstborn son. And a spirit of grace and supplication is given them to do that, to weep and to wail. That's Zechariah. If you want to read that whole story, read chapters 12, 13 and 14. I love that Paul writes Romans, the letter to the Romans, particularly chapters 9 to 11, because Paul's summary is um, it's just the clearest summary in Scripture of God's redemptive story concerning Israel and the nations because, you see, Paul had a revelation about it. How many of you know he was the apostle? Was he the apostle to the Jews or the Gentiles? The Gentiles. He was a Jew a rabbi, a very learned man with zeal for his own people. And even though he was assigned to preach to the Gentiles, every, every new place he went into, he always, where did he go first? The synagogue. Because he had this burning zeal for his people. In fact, his heart was constantly in anguish. And the word there speaks of even physical pain over the condition of Israel. I've, you know, I've often wondered actually whether his thorn in the flesh was this unending anguish that felt like physical pain in his body for his people. Something to think about. And God never took that away from him as far as we know. Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome because the church in Rome had lost sight of God's redemptive story. And the Gentiles were coming to that conclusion that it's too hard to do this thing with the Jews and you know what, they're rebellious and stubborn and we think God's actually forgotten about them. Well, he's just not interested, time's up. Um, and Paul writes to them and he's very concerned to, to articulate the redemptive story so that this anti-Semitic um, position and stance and perspective is nipped in the bud right there. And he reminds them, Romans chapter 9. I'm not going into this, by the way. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you chapter 9 is Paul reminding the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome that in the past Israel was chosen. To them, right? To them belongs the adoption to sonship, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God's own son. You can read it. 
jumping to Romans chapter 11, Paul says very clearly in this chapter, a future time is coming when Israel will be saved. Right? You can go and read it. Um, There are some scriptures, I'll just maybe put that on the slide, Romans 11, verses 11 to 21. I think for right now, I'll just read verses 11 to 14. Okay, so this is Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 14, just so that you can hear it. Again, I ask, did they, that is the Jews, stumble so far as to fall beyond recovery? He says, no, not at all. I breathe a sigh of relief because some of us in the room, we think, have I stumbled so far that God, like there's no hope for me? And what's his answer? No, not at all. He says, rather because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Oh, but if their transgression means riches for the world, so if their stumbling and their stubbornness right now means riches for the world, And their loss means riches for the Gentiles. In other words, because of their stubbornness, this is God's plan. The gospel message is going to the Gentiles now who are going to receive it. How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Wow. Are they fully included? Samuel Whitfield told us on Saturday night when we met as a a tour group, that the percentage of Jews in Israel right now who profess a faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and God's son is 0.3%. Are they fully included? No. Is it going to happen? Yes. (laughs) You can read the rest of that later. But Paul, let's go now to Romans chapter 10, because chapter 10, the summary statement is, in the present, Israel is stubborn. That's where we are. That's where we are. In the present, they're stubborn. And he says in verse 1 and 2, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Can you say that's your heart's desire? Because you understand God's redemptive story. Because you understand that he's going to use Israel. Right? And he's going to use the nations. And it's going to work together. And when everything is lined up, the Lord's going to return. If we understood that, maybe we would pray for their salvation. Romans 10, verse 14 and 15. How then, says Paul, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe, this is the Jews, in the one of whom they have not heard? 
How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, now he's quoting Isaiah 56, sorry, 52 verse 7. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And in that context of Isaiah 52, 7, Isaiah is speaking about good news of the, the Gentiles proclaiming good news. Isaiah 40. Comfort my people. It's a word to the Gentiles. Tell her this and that. Speak my comfort. Speak my hope. Speak my message to Israel. Do we even know what the Lord would speak if you came across someone today? who is of Jewish ancestry and they know the Torah. They know, but they've not seen the Messiah. What words of comfort and hope would you speak to them? What does the Bible tell us to speak to them? When I was um, preparing this, although I've read these chapters many times, I had just, you know... I had a little bit more revelation. It was, it wasn't like new, a new thing, but it was like God just shifted the sparkling prism and I saw something from a different angle. You know when that happens? And I wrote it down because I was struck again by the humility of God, the humility of God in his mercy. That even though Israel, and Jesus wept over Israel, over Jerusalem, and even though they rejected God's prophets down through the centuries and killed his only beloved son, God is fully committed to expressing the height and the depths of his continuing love and mercy. And he's now inviting disciples from every nation filled and empowered with wisdom and revelation by his spirit to proclaim his gospel message to the nation that he chose to reveal himself to the earth. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Amazing. What mercy. What humility. God did everything. Gave his only beloved son. And for us in this room, we wouldn't even done that. And let's say we had, well, that would certainly have been the end if they rejected him then. And yet mercy, mercy, but for mercy, it gives me hope to pray for people whose hearts are hard. Because you see, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. And he is patient, it says, Peter says, he's patient at the moment Not because he's not going to fulfill all of his plans and all that. Not because he's forgotten a single thing. Not because he's just kind of like putting up with evil. No, because he wants everyone, everyone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so he tarries like this. And he inches his plan forward. 
everything is going to be fulfilled. Everything. Everything. Romans 11.32, just before the doxology, Paul's just expounding on this and he says, For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, Jew and Gentile, so that he may have mercy on them all. I want to just say, I'm not going into this topic today, but another whole topic is understanding that Abraham's son, Ishmael, also received promises that will be fulfilled. And you know, God said to Hagar, he will become a great nation. That was after Hagar listened to God, after she'd gone out, she'd left when she was pregnant. She'd, she'd run away. And God said, Hagar, go in, go back. Serve my agenda. Serve my will. Serve my choosing. And she did that. And you'll see the difference between the first prophecy and the second prophecy. The first prophecy, you know, we can see that. And the second prophecy is... You can go and hunt that one out. But the second prophecy is that God will make from Ishmael a great nation. And the word great there is a word that means great as God calls greatness. Have we seen that yet? Not yet. But we will. Paul's doxology, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Can I have the worship team come up? This... This message is one, and I'm telling you right now, we cannot overlook this. We cannot chop out those passages in Scripture. We must look at them and ponder them. And you know, the issue really here is, will I allow, will I ask the Holy Spirit to connect me with the heart of God? With his continuing redemptive story. Every aspect of it, even if it offends me. Even if it offends me. You see, Ishmael received a further blessing. When Hagar came back. And she submitted to God's plan. God blessed You see, because he said to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. We don't want to be found wrestling against God's plan. We want to understand it. We want to ask him to let his heart. There are so many verses in scripture 
which are pulsating with the emotions of God for Israel. Jesus is coming back as a Jewish man, same as when he was here, a Jewish man to Jerusalem to rule from Jerusalem. That is the biblical narrative. That is the enduring story. And if you're struggling with that this morning, it's a hard struggle. And you need to go to God. You need to ask for help. Say, God, I don't know. I seem to have made you in my own image when it comes to this. I seem to have sort of like set up some other standard and I'm worshipping at that altar. I need to know the truth. I want that truth to set me free. I want to get ready. Because you are going to fulfill everything that your word says. Help me, Holy Spirit. Give me understanding. Give me a hunger and a thirst to read biblical prophecy. In fact, to yearn to understand it so that my life lines up with it right now. I find myself drifting one degree at a time, one degree at a time until, I don't know. Do I even know God? Lord Jesus, we are in awe of your mercy. God, Father God, we are in awe of your mercy. In awe of your mercy. We've received that mercy. Lord, we want to be those watchmen on the wall that Isaiah spoke of, chapter 62. The ones that, Father, you are planting. You've planted them down through the ages and there's going to be a huge throng of them at the end of the age. Those watchmen of the walls. Those who stand in the place of prayer all over the nations and they cry out. They don't give you peace. Day or night, they're not going to be quiet until Jerusalem becomes the praise of all the earth. Until everything that you've prophesied comes to pass. Until you are seen as the God eternal whose word is unbreakable and unshakable. Lord, we want to be found in that place when you come back. worshipping you when it's all coming down we know the end from the beginning and we're saying faithful and true are you Lord Jesus righteous are your judgments O God for you have proven your mercy Beyond, 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 beyond doubt. And we will worship you. And your glory will cover the earth. The glory. We will look and we will be amazed. Because you're going to be so much glory, more glorious than we could ever imagine. And that glory, that splendor and majesty is going to 